If you've got your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We are walking through the book of Exodus right now. And we are a little past the midway point. We're camping out in the Ten Commandments here for just a little while. And what we've seen is God show up and keep His promises to His people Israel. He had promised Abraham that his descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky, that he would give them a land to live in, and that he would bless them and bless the nations through them. And at the beginning of Exodus, they find themselves in bondage to Egypt. So God sends Moses to deliver them through the plagues, Passover and Red Sea. God sustains them in the wilderness through giving of manna and water from the rock and quail. And God is just saving and sustaining His people. And then at Mount Sinai, He is entering into a covenant with them. He enters into this agreement with them that if they obey Him and obey His laws and make Him their King, then things will go well for them and God will bless them. But if they refuse to follow God as their King, if they refuse to submit to His commands, then God will actually stand against them and they will experience the judgment of God. And the Ten Commandments is the most famous part of this law that God gives. These ten words are spoken audibly to Israel as God has descended in a cloud at the top of Mount Sinai. We've seen in the last few weeks that the first three commands deal with worshiping God alone because He's the only God and with reverencing Him with our worship and our words. We saw that the fourth command deals with God calling His people to live their life within the divine rhythm that God has provided, applying the Sabbath principle to their lives. And then we saw last week as we turned to the second half of these commands that deal with our horizontal relationships that God calls us to honor our parents and the different authority figures God has placed in our lives. This morning we turn to the sixth commandment, the command to not murder. I'll read it, it will be brief, but it's Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. That simply says in four words, You shall not murder. And what I want to do this morning is I want to ask the question, what does the Bible say about murder? We know that it says, don't do it, here in Exodus 20. But what does the Bible say about murder before the book of Exodus and after the book of Exodus? This morning we look at the topic, murder, anger, and the justice of God. And I want to point out four truths from this text and from all the Bible about this topic of murder. One that we will see shortly is relevant to all of us even if we've never killed anyone. The first of these four truths is this. After the fall of man, murder is tempting. And it's also legislated by God. After the fall of man in Genesis 3, murder is tempting to those with a sin nature and it is legislated by God. After Adam and Eve rebel against God's command in the Garden of Eden, a story we all know, 
We see that they begin to turn on each other. They begin to blame each other. And they are actually cursed with broken, self-centered relationships from then on. Eve is told as a judgment for her sin that bearing children will be painful, which is much more than a reference to the physical pain of childbearing, but also to the pain of child-rearing, to the fact that now Adam and Eve are going to have children who have sinful hearts, and they're called to shepherd them to love God and love others, and yet that process will be painful. Why? Because... They are little sinners just like their parents, as we all know. Adam and Eve experience this pain firsthand as their children, their two sons, grow older and their oldest, Cain, murders their youngest son, Abel. From there on, Genesis chapters 5 and 6 show how sin spirals out of control in God's world until God decides to start over with a man named Noah and his family, judging all the earth with a flood, but saving Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their wives. What's interesting as you read through Genesis is that after the flood subsides and Noah and his family come off the ark, God gives Noah a commission just like he had Adam and Eve in the garden. And it's a very similar one to the one that God had called Adam to in Eden. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it and subdue the creation. These are the same kinds of commands, but he adds something that wasn't there before. He tells Noah in Genesis 9-5 this, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God has made man in his own image. What what is God saying there? God's telling Noah that as he repopulates the earth and rebuilds the earth, that a system of justice and accountability will now be in place. So that when someone slays another person made in God's image, they will be held accountable how? By forfeiting their own life. This is the source of the practice of capital punishment that has been practiced by civilizations all throughout history. God's logic is this. Mankind has inherent value because they are made in God's image. So to kill an image bearer, To kill a human being is not just sin against that person, but it is also vertically a sin against God, which is a big deal, so big of a deal, that God tells Noah that this now needs to be legislated. This legislation for murder is carried forward by civilizations. It's even picked up and commented on after Jesus Christ has come by His followers, His apostles who write the New Testament. These apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, acknowledge that governing authorities are in place and that they should be submitted to because they are instituted by God. But they go further than just saying submit to governing authorities. Paul makes the argument in Romans 13 that God has given what he calls the power of the sword 
to the state to execute justice. Meaning that the state has an authority given to them from God to take a life for a life when injustice and murder occur within their domain. In a fallen world where selfishness and anger reign supreme, authorities must have a legitimate authority to uphold justice. And the Bible teaches in the Old and the New Testaments that this authority is ultimately given from God. With sinful hearts, murder will now be a constant temptation and our God legislates it in the Old Testament and it is carried forward by the apostles in teaching the church in the New Testament. That's one, the first point that we can see about this topic of murder and anger and the justice of God and what all the Bible says about it. But there's another Another one that hits a little closer to home. And that's this. God's standard is higher than not killing people. God's standard is higher than not being a murderer. We see that God requires a reckoning for murder in Genesis. And then God commands His people Israel in Exodus to not murder And what we'll see as we walk through the laws that God gives His people is that God actually differentiates between accidentally killing a person and premeditated murder. God will even give specifics in His law about when you can and can't attack an intruder and with what kind of force you can use. God is also going to provide the people of Israel with cities of refuge so that if they unintentionally kill someone, they can flee to them to avoid the revenge-seeking family. God says a lot about this command murder and not murdering and, and how it plays out within His covenant people of Israel. But His standard is much higher for His people than just not being a murderer which is where Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 is extremely instructive. Listen to what he says. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says we need to quickly reconcile with our brother before worshiping, offering worship to God. Jesus says, you have heard God say this, but I say unto you. As a general rule, if you ever visit a church or if anyone ever stands in this pulpit, myself included, and says, you have heard the Bible say this, but I say unto you, go to a different church. Don't stay there. Because whenever we start questioning God's Word, that's dangerous. But Jesus here is not questioning God's Word. He is not contradicting God's Word. He is not opposing God's command In the Old Testament, to not murder. What Jesus is doing 
is he's filling in the details of God's intention behind that original command. Jesus knows the thoughts and purposes of God and he's forcing his disciples and his enemies and the onlooking crowds to think through what is going on in my heart when I get angry. What is going on in my heart when I contemplate murder? Every one of us in this room has probably thought at some point, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I've never killed anybody. Often, when we evaluate ourselves and our obedience and our righteousness, we typically grade ourselves on the curve and we compare ourselves to others that we consider to be far worse sinners than us. We usually don't ask, how do I measure up to Jesus? We ask, how do I measure up to Hitler or this or that person that caught caught as a serial killer? What Jesus is exposing, though, in these Ten Commandments is that God doesn't just care about your actions. He cares about the heart behind your actions. Because God's law... In our actions, God's law that speaks to our actions is also after the source of our actions, our hearts. And God cares about our hearts and our desires and our intentions and our motivations because God calls us to love Him with what? All of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus is reminding them here that God's standard is perfection. He's instructing them here that while killing someone, murdering someone in this life obviously has more serious temporary consequences that an angry heart can have eternal consequences. Killing someone might land you in jail, but an unrepentant angry heart can land you in hell. Which means this. It's possible to be a law-abiding citizen who never physically harms anyone while still standing opposed to God because of the anger that is ruling you from your heart. Jesus emphasizes in His ministry how high God's standard is because without us seeing our inability to meet God's standard, without us recognizing our sinful nature, we will never arrive at the place where we see our need for God's merciful grace. Or in Jesus' words, people who don't think they're sick don't go to the doctor. God's standard for His people is far higher than not being a murderer. That's the second truth on this topic of murder, anger, and the justice of God. We see that after the fall, murder is tempting, and that God even steps in and legislates it. And we see, though, that God's standard is far higher than not murdering. So now we look at the third point about what the Bible teaches on this topic. And that's this. Almost all anger is rooted in idolatry. Almost all anger 
is rooted in idolatry. Jesus says, you might not kill someone, but if you've got anger in your heart, you're just as liable to judgment. So God cares about your heart. He cares about your anger issues. So if we don't want to be a people who are marked by anger, then we've got to look at what's causing the anger. Almost all anger is rooted in idolatry. We, we saw this last week on the topic of honoring your parents and honoring authority. And what I tried to emphasize, and I hope that, that it stuck with you, is that any time that we break the second through the ninth or the, through the tenth commandments, it's because we have first broken the first commandment of worshiping other rival gods. I've got news for you. This might be news that you're aware of, or it might be news that nobody's ever told you before. But you have anger problems. You. Not your neighbor. You. And me. We all have anger issues. Your anger issues might come out in different ways. Yours might be an explosive anger that will lose it on people. Or yours might be a slow, brooding anger that is wronged and will never forgive, that keeps a record of wrongs and will punish others by distancing yourself from them. Your anger might show itself in different ways, but we all have anger issues. And even if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you must intentionally fight against the flesh. And to fight anger problems, you don't primarily need medicine. You don't primarily need worldly strategies like counting to ten or cutting people out of your lives or avoiding certain situations. If you want to deal with the anger issues in your life, then you've got to get to the root of the anger issues, which is what's going on in your heart that's making you angry. James, the apostle, writes something extremely helpful in James 4, 1 through 4, that deals with this topic. He's not writing this about your neighbor. It's about you. James 4, 1 through 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions or your desires are at war within you? You desire something and you don't have it, so you what? You murder. You covet something and you can't obtain it, so you what? You fight and you quarrel. He says you don't have what you want because you're not asking for it. And when you do ask for it, you ask wrongly so that you can spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not think, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The Apostle James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is getting in our business this morning. He's answering the question, why do you do what you do? Why do you have anger issues? Why do your emotions, are they out of control? What's going on in your heart? 
And what he says is that people will fight and quarrel and even kill. Why? Because of their passions and their desires inside. Because of what's going on in their hearts. He says you want something so bad that when you can't get it, you conclude that you need to punish other people who are getting in your way of getting what it is that you want so bad. The word for that thing that you want so bad that you're willing to kill and fight and quarrel is an idol. And then he gets real right after saying that with with, with the people he's writing to and with us, and he says, that is adultery. You're being an adulterous people. Now, what is adultery? That's next week. Come back. But preview, what's adultery? Adultery is when you give yourself to someone other than your spouse whom you have exclusively committed yourself to. That's number seven in God's top ten list. That's what adultery is. But James here says that when we worship idols, that it is spiritual adultery. Why? Why does he use that word? Many of us don't consider ourselves to be murderers or adulterers, but Jesus and James, his brother, have just said you're both. I'm hoping that your estimation of your holiness is slowly decreasing, which will then make you look up to Jesus and your desperate need for Him more and more and more. Why does He say that? Why does He call it spiritual adultery? Because God demands all of us for Himself. He demands all of our worship and all of our time and all of our hearts and all of our passions. And when we are giving ourselves to God replacements, when we are giving ourselves and our best energies and efforts and desires not to God, but to things that He has made, when we're trusting that they and not God will satisfy, when we're putting our hope in them to give us the peace and joy that we're after, we're telling God with our lives, God, I love you, but you're not enough for me. We're showing God that we love what He's made more than we love Him. We love His gifts more than we love the giver. Which is a massively big deal. Which is why James calls it spiritual adultery. That's why James says when you do this, you are showing that you love the world more than God. So according to the logic of Jesus, you might not have ever killed anyone, but you're just as liable for the judgment that murder deserves because of your anger issues. And according to his brother Jesus, or his brother James in James 4, the reason that you fight and quarrel and have anger issues, which Jesus says we all have, is because there's something you want in your life more than God and that you're trusting in more than God and when you can't have it, you can't cope and therefore you respond in these emotionally driven ways. So so my my big takeaway from the Ten Commandments and from the book of Exodus that I want you to walk home with is you are not near as holy as you think you are and Jesus is far more holy than you ever thought he was. Like, I want you to feel this big, this big. Because until you feel totally inadequate and you recognize that just because your butt's in a pew on a Sunday doesn't make you perfect and righteous and better than everyone, until you realize that, 
then amazing grace is just going to seem like average grace to you. we got to recognize sin is not my neighbor's problem. It's not people that are lost problem. It's my problem even now as a believer because my heart is an idol-making factory. And I might look good compared to lots of other people, but compared to Jesus' perfect righteousness and God's perfect standard, I'm not. We all have idols in our lives, which means we're all spiritual adulterers, which means we've all got work to do. And we've got to identify the idols in our lives in order to deal with the actions that those idols produce. You came this morning probably not signing up for biblical counseling, but but we're getting it, right? This is Sanctification 101. This is important. How do you spot an idol in your life? This is how. You should write this down. According to James, you follow the trail of your emotions to arrive at the destination of your idol. Follow the trail of your emotional responses to things and you will arrive at what it is that you are replacing God with and trusting in to satisfy you and give you the peace, hope, and joy that you are after. Why are you so hot with anger or so cool with sadness and despair? It's because there's something in your life that you think you deserve and that you think will satisfy you more than God and that you don't think you can cope without and you currently don't have it. That's why. Or, it's equal opportunity, it also deals with our positive emotions. Why is it that you are on top of the world and filled with joy and happy? So often, it's because of this. It's because there is something that you want and that you're believing will satisfy you, and you currently have it. So everything's good. Your emotional responses, positive or negative, will lead you down the trail to what it is that you are trusting and hoping in to satisfy you and give you peace. It could be companionship or friendship. If only I had this, then I would be satisfied. It can be control. If only I can control my circumstances. If only I can control this or that, then I will be satisfied. It could be comfort and relaxation. If only my kids would shut up and leave me alone when I get home, then I could fully have joy. And if they get in the way, then I will lose it on them. Because the idol that I'm worshiping in this moment is relaxation and comfort. And I have earned it today and I deserve it and I will punish anyone that gets in my way. It could be man's approval. If only people like me and will validate what I say and think highly of me. It could be good health. If only this diagnosis goes a certain way, then then everything will be good. It could be nicer possessions. It could be security and safety. It could be validation and respect from others. It can even be something as base as food or drink. That's what's tricky about idolatry. Idols are not evil in and of themselves. They're usually good things that we turn into little gods. 
good things that we treat as God replacements and that we trust in to satisfy us when we're not believing that God is actually enough for us. A desire for companionship and friendship is not a bad thing in and of itself. But when we punish people when they don't give it to us, then we're showing that that desire for companionship is rooted in idolatry. A desire to control your schedule is not a bad thing. But not being able to cope with unexpected surprises and taking it out on others who would dare to have the audacity to make your plans not come to pass, that is rooted in idolatry. A desire to be healthy is not a bad thing. But talking about your health and your diet more than you talk about God and judging others who don't meet your standard of health oftentimes is rooted in idolatry. A desire to eat is not a bad thing. But have you ever heard of someone being hangry? Getting hangry, hungry, angry when your stomach growls and you're ready to to hurt people because you don't have food? You're trusting that that food is going to satisfy you and your emotions are being driven by that and it's rooted in idolatry. A desire for man's approval is not in and of itself a bad thing. But not being able to cope and not being able to sleep at night and fretting constantly when someone disagreed with you or someone took something you said the wrong way is oftentimes rooted in idolatry. I could go on and on, but I hope you see the principle here that almost all of our anger and emotional responses are rooted somehow, if you trace them back far enough, in idolatry and trusting that something other than God will satisfy me. This isn't everyone else's issue. This is our issue. Notice, however, that before I started that point, I said the word almost. Almost all anger issues are rooted in idolatry. The fact that our emotions lead us down the trail to our idols does not mean that God wants us to be an emotionless people. God created emotions. And in order to help us understand His character, God actually describes Himself as having emotions also. Which means that there is a time to be angry and there is a time to be sad and there is a time to be happy and filled with joy. And just because you're sad about something or angry about something or happy about something doesn't mean that you're committing idolatry in that moment. God's goal here is not to turn you into an emotionless robot. So how do we make sense of this idea that our emotions take us to the destination of our idol, but our emotions are not always evidence that we are committing idolatry. That might seem contradictory. Let me explain. You have to think about how God factors in to your emotional responses. God wants you to enjoy the creation He has made, but He doesn't want you to enjoy it more than you enjoy Him. So true, righteous, godly happiness is one where we're thankful for the gifts of God and we're acknowledging that the only reason we are experiencing the gifts of God is because of the grace of God and we're giving glory to God as we enjoy what God has given. 
That's a long sentence. But true, righteous, godly happiness is one that is thankful for what we're experiencing in the moment and we're giving God the glory and acknowledging that He is the giver of all good gifts, not replacing God with the gifts that we're enjoying. Our happiness is not idolatry when we're giving God the glory and acknowledging Him. But when you are totally content with what God has given you without considering God, without a reference point for God, that we are in the danger zone of not loving God with all our hearts. Similarly, in a fallen world, there's a time to be angry. There's a time to be sad. When God's character is being misrepresented or defamed. When people who are made in God's image are being mistreated and facing injustice. It is right to be upset when we see sin's consequences through the reign of death and through broken relationships and corruption in our world, it's right to be upset. In fact, I would argue that there are times where the only proper, godly, emotional response to a situation is anger. There are times where if something is happening and you're not angry about it, that you're actually sinning for not being angry. Usually we... Just talk about Christians and kind of act as if being a Christian just means you're passive and you've got self-control and you never show any emotions. There's a time where to not be angry is sin because you are looking at evil and injustice and you are passively, apathetically ignoring it and saying, this is not my problem. But it is your problem because you're called to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. If God is being misrepresented and defamed. If truths about Him are being proclaimed that are not true about Him, it should make you angry. If people made in God's image are being unjustly treated, it should make you Angry. And that's why we can say that Jesus was perfectly sinless even when there are clear examples in the Bible of Him what? Being righteously angry. Because if Jesus walked into the temple and saw God's name being defamed, if Jesus walked into a situation and saw the religious leaders keeping others from the grace of God, and He just said, not my problem, I'm going to go mind my business, then He would not have been the perfect sinless Jesus because there is a time where not being angry makes you sinful. It angered Jesus because of how sinful actions were affecting God and affecting His neighbor. Jesus' anger, listen to this, was never rooted in His concern for Himself but it was always rooted in His love for God and His love for His neighbor. Jesus was perfectly righteous as the perfect image of God, the God who in His holiness and justice stands opposed to and is angry with sin that defames Him and devalues His image bearer. And Jesus reflects that same character during His perfect, sinless, righteous, and even emotional and at times angry life. But Jesus does far more for us than model what righteous anger and perfect emotional responses 
look like. We don't just need a model. We need a Savior. And that is exactly what Jesus is for His people. And that brings us to our last point. And that's this. That Jesus bore God's wrath to pay for our anger issues. Jesus bore God's wrath to pay the penalty for my anger issues and to empower me to peacemaking, to being a peacemaker. Our sin nature and our idolatrous hearts show that we prefer the things God has made to Him. We trust that they will satisfy us more than Him. That's why when it's noon, you're thinking about lunch and thinking, come on, preacher, lay in the plane. Because Mr. G's will satisfy more than Jesus. That's one of a million examples. Our hardened and divided hearts are so often content, Jeremiah tells us, to settle for broken cisterns that can't even hold water when Jesus is offering us Himself a fount of living water. We're running around worried about our broken cisterns that can't even hold enough to drink when Jesus is saying, I'm the living water, I'm the fountain, come to me. And because of our rebellion, what we have earned is God's righteous anger and judgment. We deserve to face God's wrath because our sin defames God's name and dishonors those made in God's image. And we need Jesus to be far more than us than a moral example of how to do right. We need a Savior who will step in and bear the anger and judgment of God that we have earned because of our sin. And that is what Jesus does. Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous all of His days and His actions, words, attitudes, and emotions. Jesus fulfills God's law perfectly. He fulfills the Ten Commandments in the book of the law perfectly. He is the one who deserves God's covenant blessing for doing what Israel and we fail to do. And yet in love, Jesus does not take advantage of the blessing that He has earned, but He instead takes upon Himself the curse for our sin, for our breaking of the Ten Commandments commandments and the law. He takes upon Himself the judgment of God and the curse of God in our place. He willingly goes to the cross of Calvary at the hands of lawless men and He is murdered as an act of injustice by the state facing an unjust capital punishment, a legislation that He had put in place in the first place to uphold justice in a fallen and broken world. In love while suffocating to death, hanging on the cross of Calvary. Jesus became our Passover lamb and our substitutionary sacrifice to bear the righteous judgment of God on our half, to pay the penalty for our anger issues and our sinful nature and our idolatrous hearts. The one who said, thou shalt not murder in Exodus 20 is murdered for our sin. 
Jesus Christ is simultaneously killed by the unrighteous anger of sinful men and the righteous anger of a holy God. And in His willing death, Jesus pays the penalty for our sin, for our murder, for our anger, for our selfishness, and for our idolatrous hearts that love what He has made more than Him. Jesus pays the penalty that we had accrued in full. He takes the curse of God upon Himself that we have earned. Why? We sang about it earlier. To satisfy the justice of God and to justify the rebellious sinner. He does this to put on display the righteous character of our holy God who will do what is right and will fully punish evil while simultaneously making a way of salvation for the slave to sin. And when Jesus' dead and lifeless body began to twitch in the tomb three days later and God raised him from the dead, what it meant is that the payment he made for our anger issues and our idolatrous hearts had cleared. His sacrifice had worked. God's wrath had been averted and God's people had been saved. You might be here this morning and like me have never actually physically killed anyone but according to Jesus we have all murdered in our hearts. Falling short of God's standard we have defamed God's character and we deserve and have earned His judgment. But we need not face the anger and judgment of God because the perfectly righteous Jesus bore it for us. And He not only pays the penalty for your sin, which is good in and of itself, He not only pays the penalty for our sin, but He also empowers our powerlessness to say no to sin. On our own, on your own, on my own, we we can't overcome our anger issues. On our own, we don't stand a chance to say no to sin and self. But when we repent and believe and surrender to Jesus, when we rest in and trust in His perfect work for us, then the Bible says that we enter into a new covenant with God and we are given new hearts so that God actually unzips us and comes down and lives inside of us in the Holy Spirit so that we now are empowered to say no to sin and to not live in the bondage of the flesh. Friends, you can't keep the Ten Commandments on your own. But Jesus Christ did. And His righteousness has been credited to your account. And His Spirit now dwells inside of His people because He is where true salvation is found and He is where true life change is found. He is where we can be justified and He is the one who empowers us to be sanctified. So you need to stop counting to ten. And avoiding certain people and situations because ultimately those are putting a band-aid on a wound that can only be healed by the blood of Jesus. Our anger issues must be resolved and can be resolved if Jesus is inside of us and a new heart beats within us because we know now that Jesus and not those idols truly satisfy 
When we possess the true treasure of Jesus, we don't need those God replacements anymore that always overpromise and underdeliver the joy that we are after. When we possess the treasure of Jesus Christ, we need not punish people by quarreling and fighting when they get in the way of us feeding our idols because we are trying to make our idols starve to death because we have learned that they will not satisfy because Jesus is the only one that will satisfy. When you've tasted the living water, you know that you don't need anything else. When you've found the true treasure, you know that you don't have to live your life on a treasure hunt looking for joy here and here and here and never being satisfied. When you've got Jesus, you've got everything that you will ever need and you can live your life saying and singing, Jesus is better than all riches, than all comfort, than all sorrows, than all of anything I could ever put my joy in. Jesus is better. We need not be angry and murder when we are saved, when we are satisfied, and when we are joyfully surrendering our lives to Jesus as Savior and King. That is what Jesus provides for His people, and that is who Jesus is for His people. And that is why murderers and screw-ups and people with anger issues and people with idols in their hearts who never feel like they will measure up to God can sing and praise because Jesus has died to save and to set us free. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the solution to all of our anger issues. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your grace and your mercy. And we acknowledge, Lord, that we are in desperate need of it every single day of our lives. God, we so often try to build our lives on things that cannot hold us. We so often try to build our lives on sinking sand. But God, we know that through Jesus Christ... You have offered us a way of true joy and peace and hope, of true forgiveness and holiness and purity. God, You have dealt with our guilt problem and You have dealt with our power problem through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God, if there is anyone here who doesn't know You, who sees in their life that they are running after things that will never satisfy and that they need to get off of that race and instead rest in Jesus... God, I pray that you will help them to repent and believe today. God, help us to repent of our idolatry. It takes so many forms and it applies to every one of us. Help us to truly see and savor Jesus for who he is. And help us to build our life on the rock of ages. On your character and your promises and your son, Jesus. God, help us to respond this morning as your spirit leads us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.